Well, it's already been a sweet service in many ways. Enjoyed singing God's Word, the truth of God's Word with you this morning in song and praying with you and being led in prayer and praying with others before the service began this morning. Uh, You may have already picked up on it, but this morning is a a bit of a special occasion in the life of our church because we are, uh, in a a special way, acknowledging the fact that the Lord has brought Bryce Rader to us to be our pastor for discipleship, and this is an installation service for him where we're going to seek to, by God's grace, uh, encourage him as he takes up this role of ministry among us in our church. I remember, uh, as a college student, attending a celebration service at Grace Community Church. It was the 30th anniversary of John MacArthur's ministry there at that church, and they had taken that Sunday morning to acknowledge God's goodness to them through John MacArthur's ministry over so many years. And there were a lot of different presentations that were made that were special, testimonies that were given that were very encouraging. Uh, but one of the things that stuck out to me in my mind was one of the tributes that was paid to him but was by a... Uh, a gentleman named Steve Camp, who was one of the pastors there at the time, and he wrote a song uh, that he performed that Sunday for the first time in honor of MacArthur's ministry. That song was entitled, The Mark of a Man of God. And listen to the chorus from that song. This is the chorus here. It says, the mark of a man of God is what he's faithful to and what he's fleeing from and what he's fighting for. The heart of a man of God is what he daily pursues his family, friends, the Word, the church, and the worship of the Lord. A godly man daily takes up the cross of Christ and faithfully follows Him as a living sacrifice. Now, I love that song, and what I love about the song is how it points out that this pursuit of Christ, this godliness that the man of God must possess, it's a a daily reality. It must be a daily reality in his life. So the pastor is not to be someone who puts on holiness like a suit on Sunday morning, and then takes it off after the service is over, but instead every aspect of his life, Sunday by Sunday, Monday through Sunday, should be pointed towards Christ and pointing other people towards Christ through the things that he teaches and in the way that he lives. He needs to be a man of personal holiness and integrity, a man who faithfully preaches God's word and a man who faithfully pursues Christ-likeness in his own life and in his family. We're going to see this as we study our passage together this morning. So as I said, this is a very special service for us in the life of our church. Um, This is the culmination in many ways of months of prayer and many hours of meetings and interviews and discussions. And I know that as a church, we've been praying and laboring and asking God that he would bring along uh, the person that would serve us in this very important role of discipleship. And why is discipleship in the church important? It's because it's the commission we've been given is to make disciples. That's why we exist as a church. We exist as a church to make disciples. That includes people who are outside the walls of the church this morning. We want them to come to know Christ. That's why we talk about evangelism. But in a special way, in terms of the life of the church, making disciples isn't something that ends when you become a Christian. Making a disciple is something that happens all throughout your life, and we need each other. So Bryce is brought here by God. We trust for this time to further equip us as a church to be doing the work of the ministry. Bryce is not here to do all of the work of the ministry, and he's not here to do all of the discipleship. And praise God, you're already doing discipleship in this church, and we want to see God take the ministry of Bryce among us and just kind of multiply what's already happening so that we'll be faithful to this commission that we've been given, helping each other follow Jesus. We are very grateful to God this morning in a special way, that we're able to celebrate this time. 
um, because we really do believe God is guiding our church. And our goal this morning is to challenge Bryce. I'm going to speak directly to you, brother, at times in the sermon. I'm going to look right at you and talk to you. Uh, that's intended to be encouraging to you and not discouraging to you this morning. And, and I want us all to be prayerful as we listen to what God's Word says about a, a faithful minister. What is a faithful minister of the gospel to be like? Well, to help us do that, we're going to be looking at 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. And I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me, if you would, to that passage. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. And I'd ask you to stand with me out of respect for God's Word as we read this passage together this morning. Here the Apostle Paul is speaking to his spiritual son in the faith, Timothy, giving him, really, Paul's final instructions for Timothy's ministry. He says, I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus, who is going to judge the living and the dead, and because of his appearance in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Rebuke, correct, and encourage with great patience and teaching. For the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. They will turn away from hearing the truth, and they will turn aside to myths. But as for you, exercise self-control in everything. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Amen. Please be seated. Let me give you some background on 2 Timothy as we begin our time in God's Word together this morning. This is a book of the Bible that has often been called Paul's uh, last will and testament. He was in prison at this point in his life. He was in Rome. This is somewhere around uh, mid-60s AD. And Paul is anticipating that very soon he's going to be martyred for his faith. So Nero, now the emperor, is actively persecuting Christians. And Paul, Peter, and many others are going to be killed at this time. Paul knows that it is going to be very soon that he's going to have to finish his own ministry. And he also knows that his son in the faith, Timothy, is struggling in ministry. So Timothy was, in many ways, someone that was kind of prone to a fearfulness. Even pastors can be prone to a fearfulness. It's a really good way to pray for your pastors, by the way, that we would be bold and courageous. But Timothy was vacillating because he was, he was facing conflict within the church. Some very strong leaders, it seems, had risen up within the church, and they were pressing against him. And then there was the pressure of the surrounding culture kind of pressing in on him, and he was feeling all of this pressure as he was seeking by God's grace to be a faithful pastor there in the church in Ephesus. But he was struggling. He was vacillating. He was having a difficult time. And Paul, even though he's facing death, is not concerned about Paul. That's very typical. He's concerned about other people. It's very Christ-like. And so he writes this letter to Timothy in order to encourage Timothy to be faithful, to be bold, to endure in the gospel ministry. It's one of the things about gospel ministry. It's, it takes decades, right? If you want to do it faithfully, it's a, a very, 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 very long marathon. And he's calling Timothy to be faithful as he runs that race. He wants Timothy to cling to the truth of God's Word. How easy it is for pastors to begin well, but then just to get sidetracked and fall away from the truth of God's Word to opinion and what's happening currently, and what seems to be beneficial for seeing the church get bigger. Well, Paul wanted Timothy to cling to the truth of God's Word. Paul wanted Timothy to entrust God's Word to others, 
And Paul wanted Timothy to be a good minister of Christ Jesus, which meant that Timothy would, he would preach well, he would preach faithfully, and that his life would look Christ-like. He would pursue Christ-likeness in his ministry and in his life. The words we're studying this morning in 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 to 5, they're very weighty words. They're weighty words because here's Paul kind of really giving his last instructions to Timothy as Timothy's going to like kind of pick up and carry on where Paul is leaving off. But they're really good words and they're really important words for those that are ministers of the gospel, for those that have been called to that, and of course not just those that are in vocational ministry, but this is really a picture of what Christian maturity looks like in general. This is what we should all be pursuing by God's grace. Bryce, as you look at this passage with us this morning, our prayer is that you would be encouraged, uh, that you would be strengthened, that you'd be challenged as we think about what a faithful gospel minister looks like, and that God would give you grace to pursue that, brother. Uh, for the elders of the church, Adam, Ron is unable to be with us, but I'm sure he's uh, watching right now. Scott, uh, the Lord has called us to serve as elders in the church, and this is a picture for us as well. So we have been serving by God's grace in this role of elders, ministers in the gospel. We need the Lord to continue to strengthen us. May he use this word this morning. And then again, church, just remember what you're seeing this morning is a picture of a faithful minister. We need you to pray that the elders of Christ's fellowship would look like this, that this would be what we would look like. And we need you by God's grace to pursue that same picture for yourself. As you speak God's word into the lives of others, and as you pursue Christ-likeness in your own life. There's a lot in this passage. We will not be able to say everything, but we want to take kind of two main exhortations or two main encouragements from this passage as we study these verses together. So two encouragements. The first is watch your teaching. Watch your teaching. We'll see that in verses 1 to 4. And then the second point this morning is watch your life. And we'll see that as we study verse 5. As we did last week, we're going to spend most of the time on that first point, and then we're going to cover the second point more briefly. Let's look at that first point together. Watch your teaching, verses 1 to 4. Take your copy of God's Word and look with me again. Here's what Paul says to Timothy. I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus, who is going to judge the living and the dead, and because of His appearing in His kingdom, preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and teaching. For the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. And they will turn away from hearing the truth and will turn aside to myths. Now again, there's so much to see in this passage, but you notice in verse 1 that he begins with a very weighty charge. There's solemnity here. He says, I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus, who's going to judge the living and the dead, and because of his appearing and kingdom. There's earnestness in these words. Paul is very serious. This is the only place, one commentator noted this, I thought it was helpful. This is the only place in all of Paul's writings where he kind of, kind of front loads his commands with this special preface. It just calls the attention of Timothy to what he's going to say. It's a unique passage in this way. Why is Paul so earnest? Well, for one thing, Paul's earnest because he knows he's about to die. And that is a way of sobering us up, doesn't it? We all tend to just kind of go through life as if we're going to live forever. And if we're not careful, we can start coasting in the Christian life. By God's grace, Paul wasn't a man who was given to coasting. But even as he's running to the very end, even as he sees the line ahead of him, he's running and he's pressing hard 
because he understands the seriousness of the Christian life. He knows that he is facing death at the hands of Nero. Uh, in verse 6, you just look down to verse 6, you say he's, he says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time for my departure is close. It's an interesting thing to see how he views even his martyrdom as an act of worship to God. He's all about pursuing Christ to the very last moment, and so he's exhorting his son in the faith and encouraging Timothy to be faithful. He's also serious because of the, the nature of what he's talking about in verse 1. And what's he talking about? He's talking about the coming judgment of God. That, that's really the emphasis here. That's what he's talking about. He says that this great day is coming, and Jesus is going to return to earth, and he's the judge, and he's going to judge the living and the dead, those who are alive when he comes again, and those who had died before then, but who will be raised for that moment of judgment to stand before the living Christ, and Christ will call each and every man who has ever lived to account for the way that he or she has lived. And that's solemn, isn't it? I mean, if that's true, that should change your life. If that's true, there's no reason for you to be here. But if it's true that God is going to judge every single person for how they've lived, it should change everything. And so Paul is solemn. He is serious. And this is what the Bible teaches, that this great day of judgment is coming. And so Paul is encouraging Timothy in light of this day, get ready, know that you are under the watchful gaze of God as you fulfill your ministry. So work hard, Timothy. Don't give up. Don't quit. Don't get worn down. Keep pressing on. Now we know that Christians will never face condemnation on that day of judgment. Why not? It's because Jesus was condemned in our place. He bore all the wrath of God against our sins. There's not one drop left for any of us who are in Christ. But it is true, the Bible teaches, that we will still stand before God and we'll give an account for our faithfulness to Christ. Some will have served Christ well. They will have run hard from beginning to end. They will not have given up. They will not have grown weary, but instead they would have pressed on. And so they will have this great and eternal reward. They'll be great, Jesus says, in the kingdom of heaven. Others will have been less faithful. And so they'll miss out on rewards that they could have had. And some, the Bible says, will enter heaven as through fire. And the idea is everything that they live for and everything they did is ultimately just going to be burned up and shown to be just people living for this passing world that none of us can keep. And so they won't have much to show for the life that God had entrusted to them on that great and solemn day. So in light of this reality of God's judgment, Paul gives this weighty preface to Timothy, encouraging him to pay attention to what he's going to say in the next several verses. Brothers and sisters, we need to see that the Bible is very, very clear that judgment is coming. It's what the Bible teaches. This day of judgment is coming. We will one day stand before the living God. We will one day give an account for the way that we have lived. And it's incredibly serious. It's incredibly important for us to keep that before us. Just as surely as Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to heaven, so he is coming again. And what does verse 1 say? He's coming again to judge the living and the dead. And so we must prepare for that great day. So Paul is encouraging Timothy here to live in light of judgment. My question for you this morning is, what about you? Are you living in light of judgment? 
have you wrestled with this reality that this day is coming, that you must give an account to the God who has given you life? Many are not. That's just simply true. Many are living for success in this world. It's just one goal after another goal after another goal after another goal, and they're pursuing the, the success ladder all the way to the top. But if they're unprepared for God's judgment, the day will come when they'll stand before God and all of their success will just vanish like smoke because it will be shown to be utterly insignificant in light of eternity. Many are living for pleasure. Now, that is much of what our culture is about. I've been watching more commercials during football games because I like football games. And if you watch the commercials, it's just like one scene of pleasure and party and joy after another. And many people, what they bought into this idea that I can just, I can just entertain myself for the next 70 or 80 years. And so they pursue those, those uh, small and, and you know, for a moment joyful, but then never ultimately satisfying pleasures that leave you needing more and more and more and more. And they pursue those for as long as they can until they can no longer pursue those, but they don't know that those very same pleasures that have been chosen over God, listen, will one day drag their souls to hell. It's what the Bible teaches. Many reject the idea that God will judge men and women for the way they live their life. They say, sure, people, people used to think about God like this. You know, that was, you know, before the Enlightenment, back in the day, you know, of course, they just followed along with the priest and whatever they said, and the priest talked about judgment because he was controlling them. And we know now, we know better, we know that God is a God of love. And God wants us to be happy. And God would never not want us to be happy. And so it's okay for us to pursue our own happiness as long as we don't harm others. Friends, you have to understand, that's the great ethic of our day. You can do whatever you want as long as you don't harm someone else. The problem with that ethic is it doesn't take God into account at all. It doesn't consider that God's the one that's given us life, and He's given us commands, and He loves us, and He wants a relationship with us. And if we ignore Him for our entire lives, we can expect that He will ignore us on the day that we stand before Him. Because God is fair. If you don't want God in this life, friend, listen, you won't have him in eternity because God is fair. But if you want God in this life, you'll have him forever and ever and ever. There's a weight to this, is there not? There's a weight to this. Jesus did not agree with the assessment of many of our days who said that God just wants us to be happy and live how we want. He said this. He said, uh, stay away from lust. Stay away from anger. Stay away from greed. Why? Because it's better to lose a part of your body and for your whole body to go into hell. Incredibly strong words from Jesus. And he didn't just say it one time. He said it over and over and over. Why? Because he's trying to wake us up. It's like, it's like we live in this world with carbon monoxide around us at all times, just trying to kind of spiritually put us to sleep. And all throughout the Gospels, you see him just saying, wake up, wake up. Understand, you must stand before God one day you must face his judgment. Be prepared. Be ready. And so Paul is serious here. Bryce, in a special way, brother, you must keep the day of judgment before you as you fulfill the ministry that God has called you to here. The Bible tells us in James chapter 3 that not many should be teachers because you'll receive a stricter judgment. Hebrews 13 says those who are teachers, they, they will have to give an account to God for the ministry that he's entrusted to them. And so we're praying, brother, that you will pursue the ministry in light of the gaze of God who loves you and who's looking down on you and who will be assessing the way that you minister among us. So let the day of judgment be a spur to your soul to love God and love others and pursue Christ and the ministry that he's called you to.
Well, look at verse 2 with me. You see that Paul, Peter, excuse me, um, Paul begins his instructions to Timothy in earnest. With a command there, he says, preach the word. This is really kind of the central challenge of this passage. This is what Paul wants Timothy to do. Most especially, hear this command, preach the word in the first part of verse 2. Preaching is at the heart of pastoral ministry. What is preaching? Well, preaching is really heralding God's word. Uh, preaching is not me standing up here and telling you how I think you should live or giving you my opinion about you know, passing fads of this day. Uh, the preacher is a herald, and the role of a herald is to go into the community and to proclaim a message that has been entrusted to him, to proclaim that to everyone, to know this is what the king says. When in many ways, that's what a preacher does. We take what the king has said in his word, and we come and we herald the truth of that word. We proclaim the truth of that word. The task of the preacher is not to give his own wisdom or philosophy. It is to give God's message in his holy, inerrant, and infallible word. I love that, just the inerrant, infallible word. That means something. That means that this is trustworthy and that we can teach it and we can proclaim it and we can have confidence that God is going to take his word and he's going to accomplish his work among us because that's how God works. So he says, preach the word. There's a great example of this in the life of the apostle Paul. He himself set this example for his son in the faith, Timothy. Paul was a man of great learning. He was a man of great ability. If anyone deserved to stand up you know, behind the pulpit and say, hey, these are my thoughts on how you should live or how we should understand the world around us, you know, Paul probably you know, had some, some state to be able to do that. But he never did. Instead, he made it his ambition to proclaim Christ. Listen to what he said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, When I came to you, brothers and sisters, announcing the mystery of God to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not be based on human wisdom, but on God's power. And that commitment, the commitment that you see of Paul there to only proclaim the truth of God's word, that's the commitment of every faithful pastor. That they will just make it their ambition to proclaim Christ and Him crucified. You know, at the same time, every faithful pastor will avoid the trap of only preaching on those doctrines that he kind of likes to preach on. It's very easy to have just a few things that you want to talk about, and you talk about them over and over and over. Instead, the, the faithful preacher will preach the whole counsel of God. Everything he's given to us is important, and so the preacher will labor to do that. Some preachers are content to only cover parts of the Bible. Often that looks like not covering the sharp parts of the Bible, including sin and judgment and hell. And instead, just emphasizing the nice and sweet and comforting side. And there, there are those, praise God, because we need them. But you see, a faithful pastor won't do that. He won't pick and choose. A faithful pastor will proclaim the whole counsel of God. He'll preach the entire truth of God's word. He'll preach the blessings and the curses, the promises and the judgments, the commandments and the warnings, grace and law, salvation and sin. All will be brought forward in its time from the passage in order to explain to the people of God what God has said. Most especially, faithful preachers will be committed to teaching the entire Bible. Christ Fellowship, this is what we believe. We believe that God, in His kindness, He was under no obligation, but in His kindness, He has spoken. 
And he's given us 66 books of Revelation, and each one are important. We can't neglect any one of them. If we want to know what God has said to us, we need to teach them all. Now, now that's the work of a lifetime. You can labor for decades, faithfully labor for decades, and never quite teach it all, but a faithful pastor just kind of keeps working at it, keeps plugging at it, keeps pursuing it bit by bit. He knows a, a faithful sermon is kind of like this brick that is placed week by week into the wall of the people's knowledge of God. And so he wants to study hard and well so that this is a, a well-formed wall where the people understand what God has said. Now, if you're new to Christ Fellowship, we want you to understand that we are committed to teaching the Bible. We think that God has spoken. We think that he has put that spoken word into Scripture, and he's given us this good command, preach the word. And the way we think that it's best to do that is by teaching through the Bible, book by book, passage by passage, even verse by verse, so we don't miss anything of what he said. We, we call that expositional preaching. Expositional preaching is just preaching that makes the main point of the passage the main point of the sermon. It's preaching that exposes what God has said. It's not kind of putting my ideas into the Bible. It's actually kind of digging into the Bible to show what God has said, and we're committed to that as a church. We do not want to hear the thoughts and opinions of a man. You don't need my thoughts and opinions. We get plenty of thoughts and opinions from the news and from social media and even at the office at work. We get all the opinions we'll ever need. We've discovered that most of them are worthless. That's just simply true. Many of my opinions, frankly, could be wrong, right? But I have a source of truth here that I can rest on. I have something that's stable. I have something that's trustworthy. I can, I can listen to this and know that I'm being guided into truth. Now, when we gather for worship, we want to hear from God because His Word is truth. And so, brothers, you begin your ministry among us. We want to challenge you, as Paul challenged Timothy, to preach the Word. Brother, don't, don't veer from that, right? Don't let cultural pressure push you away from that. Don't let the tensions you feel in your own soul to kind of cover over this or bring... Don't let any... Just preach God's Word faithfully. You're going to have opportunities to do that. By God's grace, you'll have opportunities to teach our youth, you'll have opportunities to teach in community groups, you'll have opportunities to teach one-on-one -on -one in discipleship, and you'll have regular opportunities to preach from this pulpit. And as you do that, we will need you to simply tell us what God has said and explain it and apply it and illustrate it so we can understand it. And as you do that, God will use that ministry to make us more like Jesus. And that's what we need you to do, brother. So, even as you preach the word, though, let's, in, let's encourage you, let us encourage you this morning to depend on the Holy Spirit of God. You're just a man, and I'm just a man, and we are incapable of changing people's hearts. It's one of the things about pastoral ministry. It is utterly hopeless in our own ability because I can't change any of your hearts, and Bryce can't change any of your hearts, and Adam and Ron and Scott. None of us have the ability to change hearts, but God does. And so if we're going to be teaching God's word faithfully. At the same time, we need to be dependent upon God to come and take that word by his spirit and actually accomplish his purposes in the lives of his people. We must trust in the Holy Spirit to do that. John Newton said this. He said, men can but declare the truths of the gospel. It is the spirit of God who alone can reveal them with power to the heart of the listener. Nothing less than a divine power can present them to the mind in their just importance and throw light into the soul by which they may be perceived. Nothing less than this power can subdue the will and open the heart to receive the truth and the love of it. 
without this divine power, even the Apostle Paul would have preached in vain. And that's simply true. We're dependent upon the Spirit of God each and every time we open His Word to help us and to make us like Jesus. Now look in the middle of verse 2. You see Paul continues to give Timothy commands, and really these commands flow out of what he had just said, the central command of preaching the Word. Now he gives four more commands here, and they really fill out our understanding of what that faithful preaching ministry in the life of a local church will look like. He says, Be ready in season and out of season. Rebuke, correct, and encourage. So faithfully preaching God's Word means that the man of God must be ready, must be prepared, must be equipped at all time to preach God's Word. That's what in season and out of season refers to. Now, the pastor will not always feel like preaching. And the congregation will not always feel like listening. And sadly, sometimes because of sin, the congregation will actively fight against the pastor who's trying to be faithful to preaching God's Word. That's a reality. Regardless of that, the man of God must be someone who is ready at all times to preach the Word. There's this heart that he has to be ready always to proclaim the truth. A faithful pastor in his preaching must rebuke. That's a difficult thing. The word there, you know, translated rebuke in my version of the Bible, it talks actually of convicting of sin. It's pointing out sin as sin and calling people to repent and to turn away from that. And that's very difficult to do. It's a challenging thing to rebuke someone, but a faithful pastor is like a surgeon who heals in order, or excuse me, who wounds in order to heal the patient. Now, third, faithfully preaching the word will include correction, and that's really closely related to it, but it's the idea of giving a sharp rebuke, even if you don't have a lot of hope that the person's going to listen. You know, the call of faithfulness is just the call to be faithful with God's word. It's not really up to me to make something happen. I can trust God to do that. There may come a time when in preaching we have to rebuke sharply, and that's part of being faithful to preaching Fourth, faithfully preaching the word also includes this command to encourage. So it includes encouragement. Now, this is positive, and this is a really important thing for a preacher to do because uh, pastors can fall into this trap of just constantly rebuking and correcting and challenging, and they forget to encourage. And, and we, we forget, one person put it this way, we can accomplish 80% of the change we want to see in another person's life by just encouraging them when we see them do the right thing. You know, the other 20%, we have to call them aside and talk with them. But much of it can be accomplished by encouraging. I think that's a true observation. And I think it's helpful for pastors to keep that in mind because encouragement is a blessing to God's people. It's like oxygen to a weary runner. It helps them continue to press on and not give up. So a faithful minister will regularly encourage the members of the church. Look at the end of verse 2 now. You see that Paul goes on to explain how Timothy was to fill this, fulfill this preaching ministry. He says, with great patience and teaching. And the idea is that if Timothy was going to be faithful to do what he's been called by God to do, he's going to have to faithfully and persistently teach the truth of God's Word. But notice, he's also going to have to do it patiently because spiritual growth takes time. Heart change takes time. It's a temptation, Bryce, for pastors, particularly for young pastors, to want to see a lot of change happen very quickly. And it's often found in a good place because we love people and we want to see people change and we want to see people, you know, get it and understand the, the importance of the gospel and the loveliness of Christ and the beauty of the local church and the importance of fellowship. And we, we see these things and we want other people to be blessed by these things so it can be 
frustrating when people don't change as quickly as we would like, but we should be patient. Why should we be patient? We should be patient because, as I said, spiritual growth takes time. If it's taken us a decade or two decades to get to the point where we are in terms of following Christ and overcoming sins, we shouldn't think that other people should come along in two or three weeks because they've heard us preaching or teaching God's Word. And we should be patient because God is patient. Isn't that the ultimate reason? We should be patient because of how patient God is and especially how patient God is with us. We really do fail over and over and over. And yet God never, he never meets us with disdain. He never pushes us away and said, I've had enough of you. That's enough from you. No, instead, he just helps us day by day. And as we walk with him, he walks with us all the way to heaven. It's such a good picture of what pastors should be like in ministry. We should be patient because God is patient and because he's been so patient with us. God then must be our model in all of this. Look at verses 3 and 4. You see Paul wants Timothy also to have a, a sense of urgency, a sense of urgency in his ministry. Why? Well, Paul says, For the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. And they will turn away from hearing the truth and will turn aside to myths. This time is coming. That word time there, doesn't, it doesn't refer to kind of like a chronological period of time, like an hour or a day. Really, it refers to a season or an era or an epoch, some coming time in the future when people would turn away from sound doctrine, sound doctrine most especially found in the gospel of Jesus Christ, but sound doctrine as it is kind of fleshed out for us all throughout God's word. The time is coming when people will turn away from that and instead, they will heap up teachers. There will be apparently many, many teachers that will be more than happy to draw a salary and perhaps a sizable salary from saying the nice and easy things that people want to hear. That's the warning that's given. We will not lack false prophets who will come in and who will spread lies. That's a promise that's given. And apparently the day is coming, Paul says to Timothy, when that's going to happen on a very large scale. We're very powerful, impressive, charismatic personalities come in with happy and exciting and pleasing things, and people love it, and they want more and more. It doesn't take much effort for us to look around in our own culture and see examples of this in our day. We can find it almost everywhere. There are many teachers who will say nice and easy things, and many people want them to say nice and easy things. Joel Osteen is a very popular false prophet of prosperity. He is not preaching Christ. He's preaching money and health and your own ability to make your own dreams come true. And God might help you do that. But just remember, it's in you. So go after whatever you want. He has 2.1 million subscribers on YouTube. T.D. Jakes has 1.45 million subscribers. Relative newcomer Stephen Furtick has 1.9 million subscribers. And those are simply astronomical numbers. That's a lot of people that are tuning in week by week in order to take in what is manifestly false doctrine. And that's a picture of what Paul's warning about here in this passage. 
He's saying you have to understand a time's going to come when people will not want to listen to sound doctrine. Instead, they will want people to come and to speak easy words into their lives. So Bryce, all of this highlights the urgency you must feel as you preach God's word among us. You know, by God's grace, he has sustained this church for eight years. We trust he's going to sustain this church for decades more as we listen to God's word and hear God's word. But part of the way that's going to happen is because you're going to study and labor and prepare and minister and disciple. And you're going to be faithful when you stand up and preach God's word. And you're going to tell us what God has said, even if we don't want to hear it. Because we need it, right? We need it. We're praying you'll be faithful as you do that. Be encouraged that God will use you in those efforts. That's a great hope for any pastor, brother, is that God, he just, he takes broken people and he, he just uses us. And it's such a privilege, right? It's such a privilege. But he will use you as you study and are faithful to study and preach and love God's people. And may he do it. Christ Fellowship, look at verses 3 and 4. And understand, as we've been saying, that it's very possible for an individual or even for a group of individuals like a local church to just turn away from the truth. Why? Because a hardness of heart can set in and we no longer want to hear what God has said. Now we just want to focus on comfortable and easy things. And so professing believers and local churches turn away from sound doctrine. Sometimes it's a slow creep over a number of years, but what they used to preach is no longer preached. The gospel is first assumed, and then it's lost, and something else comes in and takes its place. It happens all the time. Brothers and sisters, if you're a member of Christ Fellowship, you have committed to be a part of keeping that hardening from happening here. It's one of the commitments we make to one another. We say we will this is our membership commitment. We will work together for the continuance of a faithful evangelical ministry in Christ Fellowship Church of Williamsburg as we sustain its worship, ordinances, discipline, and doctrine. It means that we all have a role to play. So yes, the Lord has given us elders. Praise God for that. May he add to their number, but we all have a responsibility as the members of the church. And actually, if you study the New Testament, as the members of this church, we have the ultimate responsibility to guard the teaching and the doctrine of this church. And so we all have a part to play in this, that we would be prayerful, that we would be watchful, that we would be encouraging. Even that word discipline is so important that we would discipline when necessary to keep the doctrine of this church pure and Christ-centered and hopeful and focused on God's word. We never want our church to turn away from the gospel. And we never want to stop, listen, rejoicing in the gospel. What a terrible thing it would be if we could hear the gospel and just not be moved by it. To think that God would come into this world to die for us so that we might be forgiven and we sit back and, oh yeah, that's almost as good as the football game I'm going to watch later on. No, no, no. We're talking about heaven and hell. We're talking about the love of God displayed in matchless glory. May we always rejoice in what Christ has done for us. Young people, please listen. You are in particular danger of turning away. You know, the statistics, they, they vary, but often you hear a number of somewhere around 70% of young people that grow up in church. When they leave church, they go off to college, and they just leave the church behind, and, and a lot of money is spent wondering, why? Why would they do that? 
And there are many different reasons, but here's the main reason why young people leave the church, because they were never a part of the church. They were Christian-y. They knew the Christian phraseology. They knew how to answer the questions. But there had been no change in the heart where Christ was at the center. And so they go away and they find, actually, you know what? It's kind of hard to live for Jesus in the world, and it's not really worth the effort, and this actually looks like more fun. So I'm free now, so I'm going to go pursue that. And it happens over and over and over. What is it? It's just a picture of the heart, the heart that needs transformation, right? But instead, so many turn away. Here's my question, young people. Listen, are you a Christian? I'm not asking if you know Bible verses. I'm not asking if you've sung songs. I'm not asking if you, know, you, can, you can give the right answer. I'm asking, are you a Christian? And what I'm really challenging you to do, listen this morning, I'm challenging you because God loves you. I'm challenging you this morning to ask the question, have you ever actually wrestled with the gospel? Have you thought about it, right? Or are you just kind of like following your parents and not thinking about it? You've been given a good mind. And God loves you. Have you sat down with the Bible for yourself and said, is this true? Is Jesus who the Bible says he is? Let me look into this and find out if this is actually true. Let me ask people that can help me and can help me think about it. Let me talk with my parents about this and wrestle with whether or not what you've heard your entire life is, is true or if it's just something you're kind of assuming but as soon as it gets difficult, you're more than happy to turn away from it. Friends, it's a tragedy. It's a tragedy. And here's the thing. Only God can save our children. What a great reason for all of the members of this church to be regularly praying for the children in our church and the young people in our church, saying, God, get a hold of their hearts and help them to see that we're not just wasting time on Sunday morning, that there's a Jesus who loves them, who died that they might be forgiven so that they would trust in him and they would know life in him. Young people, listen, the church is for you. We're for you in the sense that we love you. The church is for you in the sense that God intends for you to be saved from the gospel that you're hearing every week. So listen to the gospel. God created you. He knows you by name. He wants to have a relationship with you that would be marked by love, where you would walk with him and you would serve him and you'd find your delight in him. This is the, the message the Bible teaches of the goodness of God, and yet the Bible says that all have turned away from God. Our first parents did that in the garden. They decided it'd be better to live for themselves and for God. But we sinned in them, and because we come from them, we've all inherited the same nature that rebels against God, and instead of God, just kind of wants to put self at the center of my life so that I can live for me and how I want to live, and it plays itself out in so many different ways. And adults do this. Adults sin against God in this way, but you know what children do too? Children lie, and children hit, and children fight in any way that they can, and kind of the, the portion of their life that they're in, they do not submit to God's Word, but instead they live the way they want to live. And the Bible says that that is sin, and that sin is serious, because sin brings us under the judgment of God, as we've been talking about this morning. It makes us liable to God's judgment, so that one day you must stand before Him, young people, and give an account. And the Bible says this, there is no way anyone can be good enough for God. The message of Christ's fellowship is not become more religious, do more religious things. That's not the message. The message is acknowledge that we have all sinned and fall short of God's glory and that the only hope we have is this beautiful message of God 
coming into this world as a man, Jesus Christ, and living a perfect life, a life that we have not lived, a life that we could not live, but he did it not for himself, but he did it so that we might be saved. Coming and living the kind of life that would give us eternal righteousness, and then when the moment was right, laying down his life on the cross as a sacrifice for sinners, bearing in himself the very wrath of God against the sins of all who will turn from their sins and trust in him, he died, but then he rose from the dead. And now this message is, turn from your sin, turn from living for yourself, put your trust in Christ, in Christ alone, and God will save you. He will forgive all of your sins. He'll wash them all away. It's an amazing thing. to end it, brothers and sisters? It's all gone. All sin, past, present, it's all forgiven. It's an amazing thing. He'll forgive you. He'll do that even this morning. And he will clothe you, as it were, with the righteousness of Christ. He'll look at you as if you live Jesus' perfect life. And you will belong to him. This is a good news. That's a good news that will save you. Understand, young people, you're going into a world that will tell you a thousand myths. Did you see what they turn away to? They turn away to myths. Other truth claims, other philosophies that would call you away from living for the God who created you and ultimately call you to living for yourself. And we're telling you, be careful. Don't turn away. Even now, trust in Christ and be saved. That's the message. That's what we want you young people to hear, especially this morning. You look at verses 1 to 4, you see Paul encouraged Timothy to faithfully preach God's word. Bryce, we trust you've been encouraged. We pray you've been encouraged to do the same in your ministry among us. The second point, watch your life. Look at verse 5. But as for you, exercise self-control in everything. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Verses 3 and 4, what's Paul concerned about? He's concerned about those that are falling away from the truth and those who will fall away from the truth. So he doesn't want Timothy to do that. So he addresses Timothy in particular in verse 5. He says, but as for you, don't be like this, but be like this. Be like this. What does he need to be like? Exercise self-control in everything. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Here Paul gives these four commands to address the kind of ministry, the kind of life that Timothy is to live among the people of God. First he says, exercise self-control in everything. That word translated self-control actually kind of speaks of being sober. And the idea is clear-minded, clear-headed, in control of every aspect of your life. A pastor must be marked by self-control. Notice in everything. Everything from physical exercise to eating to the words that we use to interactions with others to how we endure difficult relationships. All of these things are to be marked by self-control. It's one aspect of faithful gospel ministry. Then Paul says, endure hardship. It's true to say, I think, that while there are many difficult jobs, it's true to say that if you want an easy life, don't become a pastor. I think that's true. Okay? Don't do it. Because we all have enough problems of our own, right? But if you're called to be a pastor, you're called to be a shepherd of souls, which means you have a special obligation before God to come alongside people that are struggling and hurting and to help them with their problems as we're all walking to heaven together. And there's a burden to that. You know, Paul talks about the weight that he felt from the churches that he was caring for. There's a Wait to that. Paul says that we must endure hardship. So there are attacks and temptations of Satan. There are physical and emotional difficulties. 
There are relationship struggles. There's just the physical pain and emotional difficulty of living in a fallen world. And all of these things, if we're not careful, they can just kind of press down on any of us. But in a special way, I think Satan uses it in the life of a pastor to just kind of grind him down little by little. And I'd encourage you, brothers and sisters, to pray for your pastors, that they would not be ground down little by little because they're bearing burdens as well. Instead, the gospel minister must be willing and ready to endure hardship and to keep, at the same time, the joy and faith in Christ. And Paul says, do the work of an evangelist. So gospel proclamation is at the center, right? The, the Bible is ultimately one great story of God's plan in Christ to redeem a humanity for the sake of his name. That's what this entire book is about. It's just unfolding that plan. And so the gospel must be proclaimed as we preach, but it can't only be when we're preaching on Sunday morning. The man of God must be someone who loves Jesus and loves the gospel and wants to talk about him with others. So it'd be a regular part of our life to have relationships with non-Christians that we can share Christ with and be looking for opportunities to do that. Then Paul says, fulfill your ministry. That word fulfill there, it talks about filling something up to the brim. And the idea is that we must be hardworking. That there are good works that God has prepared each day. And there's good works, Bryce, that God is going to be preparing for you each day in your ministry. And then the encouragement is, fill your days up. Work hard. Work diligently at the good works that God has prepared for you. As I meditated on this verse this week, I considered that Paul wanted Timothy's life to match his preaching. He wanted there to be a, a match there. So it's not just what I say on Sunday, but actually my life should correspond with what I'm saying on Sunday that should match up. Sadly, it doesn't always happen. Charles Spurgeon, one of his lectures to his students, spoke about a man who preached so well and lived so badly that when he was in the pulpit, everyone said he ought to never come out again. And when he was out, they all declared he ought never to enter it again. And that is honestly what, what uh, Paul is talking about here. He's saying, Timothy, your doctrine and your proclamation must be matched by a life, a life that is worthy of the gospel. So you must watch your life, Bryce. It must be marked by self-control and by enduring suffering and by proclaiming the gospel and by working hard. So may God help you in that. We're looking at this passage together. We've seen Paul encourage Timothy to watch his preaching and to watch his life. The 19th century pastor Robert Murray McShane said, it's not great talents God blesses so much as likeness to Jesus. A holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God. So Bryce, as we've gotten to know you, we know that by God's grace you have talents and you have great gifts. But we're praying that you'll have great grace and that you will minister among us by the strength that the Spirit of God supplies and you will show us by your life what Jesus is like so we can follow him. May God do that in you. May God do that good work in all of us. Well, this is a special service for us, and what we're going to do now is we're going to have a time of prayer. I'm going to ask Bryce and the elders if they would come forward, and we're going to have a time of laying hands on him like we read about in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and praying for him in particular. So I'm going to ask Scott as we pray in this time if you would pray for Bryce and his family as they settle into Williamsburg, and then I will be praying for him just as he begins the ministry among us. And Adam, you prayed earlier, brother, and thank you for doing that. So let's go 